This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, new details emerged from a forensic investigation into suspicious employee background checks by the Dryads YMCA, which runs the James M. Singleton Charter School. A quarter cent sales tax in the French Quarter to help pay for security in the historic neighborhood was meant to go into effect on July 1st, but a legal dispute has delayed its rollout. And a former New Orleans independent police monitor and newly announced candidate for sheriff has joined some city council members opposing the proposed new city jail facility called Phase 3 that the city has been ordered to build to house detainees with serious mental illness or medical needs. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Good morning, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's here. Hey, Nick. Good morning, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hey, Charles. Good morning. So, Marta, this week... Newly released details from a forensic investigation conducted this past spring include specific evidence against the former CFO at the Dryads YMCA, which operates the James M. Singleton Charter School. The report was introduced at a hearing. How did the investigation come out? Yeah, so we, we've known there have been background check issues for a while at the school, right? That, that all kind of, I guess we could say, to back all the way up, was something the district noticed last September. Uh, but wasn't really taking heavy action on until uh, a small warning in December and then a bigger warning in March. And March is kind of when when the public really found out about what was going on and that there were these suspicious background checks. So the school ordered this forensic investigation in March and got it back in April, uh, but the public hadn't seen it until it was introduced in the trial last week. Okay. Um, It discusses uh, the former CFO, Katrina Reed. What did it show? Yeah, so I mean, it it specifically drills down into, you know, they're taking a look at her computer and her hard drive and the auditors found a document called, um, you know, quote, background check dot dot X. Like it's pretty, pretty evident that this was uh, not just an accident and it appears to be a lot more calculated than anyone I think was able to say up until this point. Yeah, previously... um... You know, the, the sort of evidence that we've seen come out in the media and from uh, from sources at Singleton and uh, Singleton audit conducted by the state kind of all pieced together, it seemed to be, you know, somewhat circumstantial. It was it seemed to be related to the fact that Katrina Reed was the one who was handling background checks. She was responding to administrator emails about where are these background checks. and But this forensic audit connects the dots in a way that we really haven't seen before. And right. it, before we had, you know, problems with like unique identifier codes, but you know, it was really, really unclear. Like, was that coming from her? or Was that possibly an error from state police? Yeah. And it looks like it went all the way back to 2014. Is that right? Uh, yes. Yeah, so these, these documents go back to, I think about 2016, but what also is new in this um, investigation is a 2014 warning from a different state entity. Um, it's a licensing entity, so it was probably for their child care aspects of the Y or something, you know, youth programming type of thing. Um, but they got in trouble for the exact same thing, which was a background check problem. We asked the district if they knew about that, and the district's response was, well, we didn't manage them back then. It was, mm. wasn't our job to know. All right, so what's happening with the lawsuit that the school filed against the district? Right, so the, the school is suing the district because the district uh, came out in late June and said that they were going to start the revocation process, which means they're going to uh, basically try to close the school before the school year starts, 
which is a very quick timeline for the district to do that. They don't normally do things um, that swiftly and especially over the summer. So Singleton and Dryad's YMCA officials sought out a restraining order, which they were granted. Um, and that currently prevents the district from contacting students or families or teachers um, until the revocation uh, is final. So if they're not able to contact the families, the, the families are surely hearing about this through either the grapevine or uh, our website or you know other coverage of what's going on. Are they able to make other arrangements for their kids, even if they haven't been officially contacted by school administration? Yeah, I mean, the families at, families at this point could, if they wanted to, try to enroll in another school through the uh, summer enrollment program. The district had said that they would give students priority enrollment. That's a good question to ask. It's unclear to me if that's still being offered, you know, if they're not allowed to make contact with these families. But yeah, basically, families could choose to leave if they wanted to right now. Um, during the hearing last week, the district said that they had not seen a drop in enrollment um, on their side of things, which is interesting, but you know, we have another two weeks before this thing hopefully finally shakes out, but that's a long time to wait. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just just to back up on that for a second for listeners who aren't familiar, under, you know, a quote-unquote normal revocation procedure, once re- revocation is underway, the, uh, the families who send their children there are given a special priority in one app. How would that typically work, Marta? I mean, typically we're going to see a priority in one app is only so good as the openings that exist at the time. So for a summer enrollment, um, it's not necessarily that great, but you would be, you know, during, if it was during a normal enrollment, you would be basically first in line to get into whatever school, new school you wanted to. Is it conceivable that this thing keeps getting kicked down and through, continues to grind through whatever legal system that it's in now and it could continue to operate as a school for this school year? I, I think the longest term outlook we're looking at for this school would potentially be to operate for one more year because they only have one year left on their contract. Okay. Um, I do think, I'm, I'm assuming, and I think my best guess is that revocation would, revocation would proceed um, at the July meeting. That's just based on the attitude of the district. Um, but if that doesn't happen, it's conceivable that the school could operate for just one final year, but it's the last year of their contract. So then I would uh, suspect it would be likely that they would, that the superintendent would not renew the contract in December, which would close the school next June. Right. Yeah, he would be able to do that without a likely legal challenge because that's, that would be the normal process. Is that that's his prerogative at any time to, to end a contract when it expires. Right. Yep. So that would be the end of the contract versus now where, you know, kind of what we were in court over was the school saying, hey, we have all these disputes with you. you you've alleged that we've done X, Y, and Z. Um, we want to talk about that and we have the right to talk about that in our contract. Um, hmm. So the other thing the judge did do is order that they both sides attend mediation by the end of this week. And, and just one last question, Marta. By the time we get to these July meetings with the school board, how far out are we from the beginning of the school year? like less than two weeks. I think Singleton probably starts somewhere between the 10th and the 15th around there, if not a little bit earlier. So that's cutting it pretty close. Right. It's an and anxious the, the time. the judge was very aware of that too. She absolutely was being empathetic to families and saying, you know, is this enough time to <laughs> even right. something like this, which legally they can do, but it is kind of pulling the rug out from under families. 
Right. Adding stress to an already stressful situation in so many other ways. You know, here comes the new school year. We're going back to whatever normalcy might look like after the pandemic. It's really got to be tough for them. Thank you, Marta. Thank you. Michael, earlier this year, through a ballot measure, residents of the French Quarter approved a quarter cent sales tax to pay for extra police patrols, which was meant to go into effect on July 1. Now, however, it won't be in place until October at the earliest as a result of a legal dispute over whether hotel room sales can be exempted from that tax. Will you explain the background on the tax first? Yeah, so, so this is a tax, um, a sales tax specific to the French Quarter um, that's sometimes referred to as a quarter for a quarter. Um, so every you know $100 sale, you pay an extra quarter. That's how the tax works. Um, it was approved by French Quarter residents in 2015 as part of you know a bunch of different initiatives at the time to increase security and police patrols specifically in the French Quarter. And from 2016, when it went into effect to the end of 2020, when it expired, um, the tax had gone solely to pay uh, for extra uh, Louisiana State Police patrols in the French Quarter. Then last year, there was an attempt to renew it. Um, there was actually a, a ballot measure um, in December uh, to renew the tax. Although there were disagreements over how the money would actually be spent. Long story short, everyone agreed that the money would no longer go to the state police um, and that they would go to local police patrols. Although there was disagreement that the mayor Latoya Cantrell wanted the money to be split between local police patrols and a new grounds patrol um, that she's put together to deal with quality of life issues. Now, the other major player in this is called the French Quarter Management District. They wanted the money to be more dedicated um, to just police patrols, and they wanted to have an explicit um, oversight role in how the funds were spent. So anyway, again, long story short, the French Quarter Management District came out against this ballot measure in December, and it was ultimately voted down. Um, and, and I should note here that th there were less than a thousand votes cast. So, so, you know, again, we're just talking about French Quarter residents and an organization like the French Quarter Management District can be super influential in a very small uh, kind of election like this. So after that, basically, after that defeat, um, the Cantrell administration said, you know, we're not going to try to renew this again. You know, the voters said no. So the French Quarter Management District started working directly with the city council to put this uh, tax back on the ballot in April. Um, now the ballot is different than it was in December in a couple ways. Um, first of all, it, it dedicates um, most of the money, um, if not all of it, to um, police patrols rather than these ground patrols that the mayor was interested in. And the French Quarter Management District, it was written into the ballot language as the uh, as an oversight body um, for these funds. Um, so that went to the ballot in April. Um, it was approved by voters. And according to the ballot language, um, the earliest they could collect this tax was July 1st, uh, 2021. How many people voted this time? Okay, so in the April election, there were 700 total votes on this, uh, of whom... 72% or 506 uh, voted for it. It was supposed to take effect on July 1, yet it didn't. Why? Yeah, so, so basically before, before the tax actually goes into effect, it gets a little confusing here, but, but 
basically the city council has to vote uh, to levy the tax. Technically, the levying authority here is something called the French Quarter Economic Development District, which is a state-created body, but it's governed by the city council. So it, it more or less is, is up to the city council um, to actually start levying this tax. Um, so, so the French Quarter Economic Development District, aka the city council, had called a meeting um, to approve the tax on July 1st, um, the same day, um, you know, again, it was, it was on the ballot measure set to go into effect, but at the last minute they canceled it. Now there, there are a few reasons, um, why this has taken a long time. You know, the main thing is that basically there needs to be a cooperative endeavor agreement between the French quarter management district, the French quarter economic development district and the city of new Orleans. And so there's been some back and forth over those terms. Um, exactly how it would work. There are a few areas where there are disagreements, but from talking to um, people with FQMD, FQEDD, and uh, Councilwoman Palmer, who's kind of heading up this effort, the, the real sticking point seems to be whether or not there's gonna be an exemption for hotel room sales. So when I say hotel room sales, the tax, there's one side that says that the hotel room sales should be exempt. In that scenario, other sales at hotels would still be taxed. So if you had a restaurant in your hotel um, or, or you know, if you had a bar in your hotel, you would still pay the tax in those. However, uh, it wouldn't be applied to hotel room rentals. And, and it actually, you know, the, the Bureau of Governmental Research looked into this and, you know, it makes a significant difference in the amount of revenue that's ultimately raised. With the hotel room exemption, this tax is estimated to raise about $2 million a year. Without the exemption, it, it jumps up to $2.5 million. So right. you're talking about a 25% boost um, to the overall revenue. So yeah, I mean, th there are a number of issues, I think, where, um, especially the Cantrell administration disagrees with the French Quarter Management District. Um, but the main one that seems to have halted this collection, um, you know, at the last minute seems to be this um, hotel exemption issue. Because hotels were exempt from this tax prior. Why, why then and why not now? Yeah, I actually didn't, uh, you know, I, I didn't realize that the that hotel rooms had been exempted from the last tax. Um, it, it, not that it was a, a secret thing or anything. I just hadn't uh, processed it. So I was a little surprised um, to find that out. So I, I went over, you know, I, I wasn't on this beat back in 2015 when this election happened. Um, I read all the news coverage. I listened to all the city council meetings um, from that time when they were discussing this tax. And I didn't hear any discussion of why hotel rooms would be exempted. I can tell you why they're arguing now they should be exempted, which is that hotel room sales um, have a few extra taxes levied upon them. Um, you know, th there's a hotel self-assessment that goes back to tourism marketing. There, there are a few extra taxes that are already paid on hotel room sales. And the argument is that, that you know, adding another one would be, you know, a competitive disadvantage relative to other parts of the city. Again, I don't know exactly what this discussion was back in 2015. I mean, I can tell you that if I was, if I owned a hotel, you know, I wouldn't want to pay extra taxes. So, you know, the, the reasoning isn't all that complicated, I suppose. I think what's more interested in is the, the, the legal reasoning, um, how, you know, how legally they were able to exempt a certain type of sale from a sales tax, because the original ballot measure did not exempt hotel room sales. And the new uh, ballot measure also did not exempt hotel room sales. Um, you know, the, the, the only real legal explanation that I could find um, was in a 2015 Bureau of Governmental Research um, report. It was a footnote at the bottom um, about why hotel rooms were being exempted. 
Um, and the Mitch Landers administration, the mayor at the time, um, had apparently said that, and it, it basically the, the explanation that's in this BGR report is that the statute on economic development districts says that they may levy up to 2% of sales tax or up to 2% of hotel occupancy taxes. And right. they, so they're, they're, they're making an argument that these are two dis- distinct things. Even though the hotel tax is a sales tax, they're, they're saying that there are two distinct things and the statute only allows you to choose one. One. Right. They're saying this is an either-or situation. Yeah. Now, I, I spoke to some of the BGR folks briefly, and you know, we talked about whether there were you know, attorney general opinions on this, whether, you know, this had been a, a clarified position and they, they didn't know of any other scenario where the law had been interpreted in this way to, to be, you know, either you have a sales tax or you can uh, tax uh, uh, hotel occupancy. Um, so, you know, it seemed like a unique reading of the law. Um, I don't know if it ever, you know, went to court or, or whether there was any other higher legal opinion other than the Landry administration, but, but that seems to be the original justification. Yeah, well, and the interesting thing on this one, too, is that they seem to have gotten in some legal trouble on, on trying to do this exemption this time as opposed to last time, because this time they did it in a way that was kind of, you know, more transparent. They, they tried to get it on the actual ballot, which meant it had to go through the state bond commission. And the state bond commission said, no, you can't do that. Hotel, you can't just, you can't just exempt a category of sales taxes. Whereas before when they had done this, it wasn't in the ballot. The language didn't go to the state bond commission. And the, the hmm. city council just added this exemption after the fact, after the vote took place. Right. And, and hmm. so bringing it back to this delay in the tax is that after the bond commission came back and said, you can't have this in the bond language, the FQMD in their meeting said, okay, that's fine. We'll just put the exemption in the ultimate cooperative endeavor agreement with the city. So as those negotiations went on, however, um, the city ended up taking that clause out of the CEA and said that we can't legally put in an exemption for hotel room sales. And so that was really the, the, the point at which, you know, the, the issue kind of came to a head um, where the FQMD thought that this was all going to get settled in the CEA. And suddenly the administration is saying, you know, we don't think that we can legally do this. And, and yeah, so and keep in mind that the, the French Quarter Management District, it's run by a board and the board, uh, the, the membership of the board is set in state law and it is, um, it's pretty heavily weighted toward the hospitality industry. There are representatives from New Orleans and Company, formerly the Convention Center. There are representatives from the French Quarter Business Association. There are, represented, there are representatives, I believe, from the Restaurant Association. So it's a, a group of people that is heavily representative of the, of, you know, the big industry in the French Quarter, which is tourism. Yeah, out of the 12-person board, three of them are, are executives at French Quarter Hotels. Um, the board chair is uh, he's the uh, general manager of Brennan's, um, and he was uh, appointed by the Louisiana Restaurant Association. So again, it, it is a fairly business-dominated um, board. All right, and it's not an insignificant amount of money that they yeah. continue to, to lose, and the clock is ticking, and there's no way to recoup this money because it's a it's a finite amount of time that it was supposed to be exacted, right? So how do they resolve this, and what happens if they continue to not be able to resolve it? Yeah, so, so you know, something I probably should have mentioned at the beginning is that the reason why this delay is a big deal is that sales taxes 
have to be implemented at the beginning of a fiscal quarter. So July 1st was the beginning of, of the third fiscal quarter. Um, now it won't be able to start until October 1st. So the plan now is to try and strike a deal and, and find a way to, you know, hash this out between now and October 1st. Although the FQMD is still holding their position that they want hotels exempted and the mayor uh, seems to be holding on to her position that it's not legally possible. So yeah, I, you know, again, it, it's going to be back to negotiations, but you know, this issue seems to be a fairly big one. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, and I would say that if the city attorney's office is under the, uh, it, it, it believes that it would be illegal based on what they've been told by the state bond commission, short of getting an opinion from the attorney general that goes in the French quarter management district's direction, I don't, I, I, I don't see how they resolve this by the beginning of the next quarter. So I would assume that that would be their next move is to take this to the attorney general. Yeah. And I, I want to point out that, you know, we, we've been covering this for a little while now, and it's a kind of a strange twist in this story only because the, the dynamic, you know, so far has been, so basically the, the control administration's problem with the FQMD's plan and FQMD's involvement is that they didn't want another independent board handling city money when it came An unelected to independent board. Yeah, unelected independent board, um, you know, dealing with an issue that is really a citywide issue. You know, when you're talking about policing and public safety, it's something that you ideally would like to be a little bit more centralized. Um, and I think they've been a little hesitant to hand over millions of dollars, not hand over, but but to entrust this this independent, unelected, business dominated board with all this money. Um, and so, you know, the dynamic that's played out, you know, since since April when when the tax was approved that the FQMD was worried that the mayor wasn't go that the city wasn't going to start collecting the tax in time. And in fact, they actually, you know, took the step of authorizing the city council to get the state to collect the tax instead of the city, because they were so worried that, you know, maybe the city was so against, you know, the FQMD's role that they just weren't going to collect the tax. And so there was a lot of concern, you know, that this tax wasn't going to get collected on time because of the administration's hesitance. Um, and now you see this turn where the FQMD stepped in um, to request a delay on this tax. It's, it is bizarre given the FQMD's position that this money is needed urgently, that it's needed now, that you know the French Quarter needs as much funding for public safety as possible, um, because now they're in a position where they're fighting for less money each year, uh, half a million dollars less each year, and they made the decision to delay it, you know, by three months, which even if they do, fi you know, fix this by October, um, they've given up somewhere in the ballpark of five hundred to seven hundred thousand um, dollars for public safety. And, and I'll add one more thing in terms of the rhetoric here. Um, there has been a lot of urgency from the FQMD in, in terms of, you know, crime rates going up, you know, right now in this moment. Right. And, and so, again, the, the talk from the FQMD is, you know, we need this tax now. We need this money now. Um, and then to suddenly see them kind of, you know, ask for a delay is, is surprising. Right. It, it is interesting because, you know, if you accept the argument and you don't, you know, you don't necessarily have to. But it take as a given that the, the argument that this is necessary uh, for public safety is a good argument. You know, so if, if you accept that as your baseline, then. The $500,000 makes a huge difference here. You know, that's that's a quarter or whatever of, of the money that would be going to these patrols. On the other hand, the $500,000 um, in terms of total total money coming into hotels in a year is kind of a drop in the bucket. Okay. They, they just pass it along to the customer. 
Like, yeah, are no, they just yeah, worried yeah. about? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not. It's not as if the hotels are, are you know paying, paying it, paying this themselves. The argument here is that if customers have to pay more at in a hotel, taxes, in... then it's there. Then New Orleans is at a competitive disadvantage compared to other cities. And, and you might and, and like so. Another thing to be to be fair is I don't think they're talking as much. You know, you, you get a hundred dollar you know hotel room for a night and it's an extra quarter. They're talking about you know big events like weddings or things that you know might be a forty thousand dollar bill. You know, a, an extra quarter you know is significant amount. But if they you know again like Charles is saying, if they thought that was an economic disadvantage and would drive away customers, they could swallow that themselves if they wanted. I mean, there's a lot of options. I would say in the, in, the, in, in the big picture, this is not a large enough tax, I, I don't think, to, to really create that competitive disadvantage. I know it can add a lot to big to larger bills in particular, but um, it's, still, it's still, you know, relative to, you know, New Orleans total 15 or 16 percent tax. This is, you know, this is a quarter of a percentage point. Right. Okay. All right. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. The Lens aims to engage and empower the residents of New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. If you'd like the inside scoop on what stories we're pursuing, what events and initiatives are coming up, and to learn more about the people who report at The Lens, subscribe today to our newsletter at thelensnola.org slash newsletters. Thank you. Nick, former New Orleans Independent Police Monitor and newly announced candidate for Sheriff Susan Hudson appeared outside of the New Orleans jail Wednesday afternoon, along with New Orleans City Councilwoman Kristen Palmer and criminal justice reform advocates to oppose the jail facility known as Phase 3. This project just keeps being um, mired in controversy. What's the latest? Yeah, so as you said, we have a newly newly announced uh, sheriff candidate, actually a, a few of them. But I think Susan Hudson is probably the challenger to the incumbent, uh, Sheriff Ronald Gussman, who is going to get sort of the most uh, support from these criminal justice reform groups. And one of their big issues is the phase three facility of the New Orleans jail, and they're, and they're opposed to it, um, specifically the Orleans Parish Prison Reform Coalition and uh, the Barrett Institute of Justice, which were uh, at this press conference yesterday. Yeah, so when, when Susan Hudson initially announced um, her candidacy, you know, there was a story about it in uh, the newspaper, and she hedged a little bit on the phase three question. She said she would like to, to reconsider it, but didn't come out and, and say that she was opposed to it. So yesterday, um, she did that. She, she said that she, she would oppose the phase three facility uh, if she was elected sheriff and would change the office's uh, position in the litigation. You know, they've been arguing in favor of this facility in federal court for, for years now, um, and, and it's happened recently. If, if she were to become elected, I think that could have some potential impact. It, it's unclear what exactly that impact would be. But, you know, this is, this is exactly what sort of uh, some of these reform groups want to hear from candidates. Okay. And they're voting, city council's voting today on a measure related to phase three today. As we speak, it's, it's Thursday. Um, what is this today? They're hearing two measures, and it's unclear to me if they're going to be voting on both of them. Um, I believe they will, but I'm not positive. One is a resolution that sort of just indicates the city council's 
opposition to to a phase three facility and its support of a retrofit of the current jail facility. And then another one would be a, a motion that would direct the city planning commission to consider a retrofit option as opposed to to a phase three option. My understanding, and I'm not entirely clear, is that the city planning commission is already considering the phase three option, and then will be will do a public hearing on it. And they will they will vote on whether or not to move it forward. That vote will be non-binding, but it will it will be a, a suggestion to the full council on on how they think they should vote, and then the full council will hear it. And all this is independent of of the machinations that are going on right now at where it's it's been mandated. It's it's that's exactly right. So yeah, you can kind of think about this in you know as as these two separate um, uh, trains moving moving toward each other in, in opposite directions. <laughs> like you have you have the federal judge that and the and, and the federal court hearings that is, is consistently saying you need to move forward with this. You need to move forward with this. And you know, denying every attempt by the city to get out Change of this facility. And then on the other hand, you have the politics of it, in which aside from the sheriff, I don't think there's any other elected officials in the city who are who are in favor of the phase three facility. And now you have a, also you have a, a challenger to the sheriff and, and Susan Hudson, who is saying you know who also thinks we, we shouldn't build it. You know what is ultimately going to happen? I think is is the city council is going to have to vote on a zoning ordinance that would would approve uh, the phase three facility, and if they don't vote to approve it, then it's unclear where where we go from there. I was talking to a, a couple of people just uh, at the at the press conference who are very who, who know a lot about the lawsuit, and they were basic. They basically said, you know, the city could get held in contempt of court. But what exactly would that mean? You know, they're discussing would the would the judge uh, start seizing you know city property? Would they start you know seizing police cars? And and you know that brings in a whole other question of whether or not the federal court would even do that, whether or not they want to do that. And so, something had we'll have to give at some point, but it'll be interesting to see. Uh, is this all under the consent decree or one of our consent decrees, or is this a, a different plaintiff? No, no, it is. It is under the consent decree litigation. Um, so yeah, this this ongoing litigation that's meant to bring the the up to constitutional standards and provide adequate care. And if the city council, you know, is really sort of intransigent and, and refuses to to approve this this measure, the the mayor has. And, and, and attorneys for the mayor have been clear that they don't think they're legally able to move forward. But on the other hand, you know, they've been mandated by a federal judge to move forward. So I, I, we'll, we'll see how that puts out. It's just a political maneuver that the city council is looking at to not approve the zoning zoning ordinance. It's a, it's a clever political move. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, they would argue that it's their their right and their their jurisdiction that they should be making these decisions over over facility and the federal judge from the court's perspective they're just enforcing a contractual agreement between the city and the other parties in the litigation that was agreed to many years ago um to move forward with this facility you know initially the, the court basically told the various parties to come up with a solution for where to to house these uh, detainees with 
with serious mental illness, and this was the agreed upon uh, solution during the previous administration. And then even during uh, Mayor Cantrell's administration, the city had indicated that they were moving forward with this, and it wasn't until, you know, June of last year that they really pulled out and said, we don't want to do this. This costs too much money. It doesn't make sense. Right. Okay. Thanks, Nick. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you all for your work this week. Thanks, Carolyn. Thanks, Carolyn. Okay, bye, bye guys. Bye, guys. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, education reporter Marta Jusen, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.